Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here in Vancouver at NURPS 2019, and I've got the pleasure of being seated with Ristu Mikulainen. Ristu is a former guest of the podcast, as well as an Associate VP of Evolutionary AI at Cognizant and Professor of Computer Science at the University of Texas at Austin. Ristu, welcome back to the Twimble AI podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so it's been uh, a bit since we last spoke, at least a year, because that's how long you've been at, uh, at Cognizant. In addition to being at, at UT Austin, you were working on a startup called Sentient. Uh, tell us a little bit about the story and transition there. Yeah, that's right. So Sentient was a startup in AI, evolutionary AI in particular. Um, and um, uh, we had at Sentient made a couple of uh, products, one in stock trading, another one in evolutionary optimization of uh, web pages. Uh, and at one point, those were spun off as their own uh, units. And uh, the research team now moved to Cognizant, where we continue as an evolutionary AI uh, research team and powering applications, trying to take evolutionary AI to the real world in mul- multiple applications. And Cognizant is primarily a consulting company? Yes, it uh, has done a lot of outsourcing and, and now a lot of consulting. Uh, in AI and uh, data modernization, digitization, and uh, AI is becoming a much bigger part of the company because that's a natural extension of uh, digitizing and uh, starting to work with data. And so before we started rolling, you mentioned that a big part of what this uh, this transition you know does for you and the team is gives you more exposure to kind of real world scenarios and maybe exposes some of the things that you need to be thinking about when you're trying to apply evolutionary AI in the real world. Talk a little bit more about that. Yes, that's been a lot of fun um, <laughs> doing consulting and doing uh, modernization in many different industries. Uh, and it turns out that AI is not just building something like self-driving cars that never existed before, um, but there's a lot of opportunity in just about everywhere to take advantage of AI. AI. Uh, and that's because almost all industries now have data. Uh, they collect the data about their customers, about their products, how they work, how they sell, uh, and also feedback on what works, what doesn't. And that data provides a great opportunity to bring in AI, to learn from that data and then improve it in the future. And it turns out that it doesn't really matter what industry you're in. You might be in retail or healthcare or, or oil exploration or, or manufacturing or many, many different industries. Uh, all of those are now on the verge of being able to take advantage of AI. And that's what we're trying to do. Take the technology there and, and make it actually um, work and add value. And so how is that uh, that change in perspective, these kind of exposure to, to different use cases changed how you think about your particular work uh, with evolutionary AI. And maybe we can start with having you do a little refresher or primer on evolutionary AI for folks who haven't yet heard your, you know, our first conversation. Sure. And it is different um, from what you might imagine what AI is today, because today most of AI is taking that data and then building a model that mm-hmm. predicts what will happen in the future. And that is, for instance, image recognition, uh, object recognition, language understanding, speech recognition, all of those are trying to get AI to do what we already know how to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now with evolutionary AI, we're trying to take the next step and that's making AI creative, having AI actually come up with new solutions or designs. 
uh, discover something that does not already exist. And that might be, for instance, a design for a web page. Humans can design web pages. Turns out that AI, evolutionary AI, can do it better. Come up with um, solutions or designs that take advantage of interactions that humans have a hard time understanding. Uh, humans can only keep a couple of variables in mind. Uh, with evolution, we can keep hundreds or hundreds of thousands of variables in mind and optimize in a much larger scale. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what evolutionary AI is. It's making AI creative. And there's a whole new opportunity uh, here uh, in applying it to different places, not just predict, but also prescribe and create. Mm -hmm. and, and this web page design use case is one that you spent a, quite a bit of time working on at, at Sentient. Is that still uh, something that you're in the, the context of Cognizant going out and working with people on, or have you, you know, broadened to uh, other use cases? Yes, we, that was um, one of the first we started with, and it's it's now its own company called Evolve, oh, okay. uh, and they are um, marketing and, and they are uh, building and developing that application, automated website optimization to maximize conversions. Uh, we are doing other things. We're really expanding out um, the uh, opportunity to use AI uh, to optimize decision-making. And that means that in companies, there's a lot of data about uh, situations where decisions had to be made in order to achieve certain objectives, like maximize performance while minimizing cost. It turns out that data is absolute goldmine because we can learn from it what happens. If you, if you decide these actions in these situations, are you going to achieve your objectives? Turns out we can learn from it and we can optimize it. And that's not something that is done today, but it can be done uh, as soon as we get those data um, sources together so we can learn from histo history, we can start optimizing for the future. When you summarize kind of the, the technical foundations of evolutionary AI or, you know, kind of in essence, how it works, what it does, how do you kind of capture that quickly for folks? Yes. So evolutionary AI is population-based search. Um, so you are trying to discover something new. You're trying to develop a new design or maybe a decision strategy. Um, you create a population of potential solutions. And that might be 100, uh, 200 different possible solutions. And then you evaluate how well each one of those work. And then you discover that these are the good ones, these are the bad ones. You throw away the bad ones, you keep the good ones, and then form recombinations and mutations of those good ones. It's like it's after biological evolution. This is mm -hmm. how, how search uh, takes place. Um, in computational evolution, you can throw away a lot of uh, solutions that don't work. You're looking for some where the building blocks coincide so that you get a better solution than your, your previous ones. And this way you can find solutions in huge search spaces. Uh, two to the two to the 70th this is one example we came up with designing a multiplexer uh, for 70-bit uh, multiplexer problem. Two to the two to the 70th is so large that if you print it out on a piece of paper, it takes light 95 years to go from the beginning of the number to the end of that number. <laughs> that's how many states there are where we're trying to find yeah. a solution. So that's the power of evolution because it's population-based search. You find building blocks, recombine them, and gradually find the solutions. Uh, and it turns out there are many problems like that in the world. We haven't really... Um, thought of them as machine learning problems because they are so huge, but now we can. And part of that is that we have the compute and we have the technology. And so is the idea to identify the problems that naturally lend themselves or are naturally kind of inherently population-based or evolution-based, or is this a technique that can be applied broadly wherever we're trying to do machine learning? Yeah, it's, it is very broad. Um, 
it applies to problems where we need to find solutions we don't already know. So it's not object uh, detection, object recognition, because we already know what those objects are. We have supervised data set. Mm -hmm. it's, it's problems yeah. where we don't know what the right solutions are. What is the optimal design of a web page, for instance? Mm -hmm. We don't know that. We, try to, we have to explore, try out alternatives, and learn what works and what doesn't. Now, the population-based search is unique in that it allows you to explore a lot more. You could do some of this with reinforcement learning and, and, and it be successful, uh, but it's based on uh, improving an individual solution. Uh, and if you have to refine it, you can uh, with that technique. With population-based search, you can hedge your bets. You can have a population that's very broadly distributed. You try things um, that you don't know anything about and you find stepping stones that then conspire in order to find something that's surprising. Uh, and that's the, that's the crux of it. Uh, evolution allows you to explore and find surprises, those that human designers might might not think of. You, you mentioned uh, reinforcement learning, and I was going to ask about this, the you know relationship between the two. As you describe the, the two, it almost sounds like in a way that evolution or, or these population-based approaches is like a breadth-first search, whereas reinforcement learning is a depth-first search. Uh, yeah, that's kind of an interesting way of, of looking at it. And it, I think it's accurate in the sense that it's breadth-first search, but you don't try to find every possible solution. Uh, you are casting a wide net, mm -hmm. uh, in that sense, have a lot of breadth. But when you find something useful, partial solutions, then you do a recombination of those. And it's the recombination that's the, the interesting exactly. kind of secret. So you don't have to systematically do breadth-first right, search. Right, you right. find something that works and you recombine and, and focus where you go next. Yeah, uh, That's the key of, of evolution. And the theory of evolution is uh, evolution computation is based on that. Building blocks, uh, hypothesis and schema theorem. And uh, there's some theory that suggests that when you find good partial solutions, they will become more prevalent in the population. And that's how you find those solutions mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. solve the problem. So kind of going back to that analogy in deep reinforcement learning, there's work that's happening to try to maximize what we learn as we're making taking actions as opposed to just throwing them out uh, yeah. you know, once we've gotten to a, a, uh, an end state. It, that's kind of analogous to uh, what we're doing with evolution. We're trying to take you know, what we're learning from kind of this breadth-first search, if you will, and combine the best of these elements together. I think I may be pushing this analogy yeah, too far. Yeah, they, they really are different in that in reinforcement learning, you are trying to um, improve an, a single solution. You get a little closer when you're thinking of off-policy learning, yeah. uh, where you're, um, you're trying to combine uh, knowledge from multiple hypothetical universes. Right. Uh, but fundamentally, population search, based search, distributes your, your potential solutions. Uh, and it's the, it's based on statistics, obviously. It's a stochastic search method. Um, but the stochastic is represented by the population. So what's there in the population represents what you know about the domain. So you gradually focus your individuals where the most likely solutions are. Uh, but you always want to... There's another part of it. You always want to maintain diversity. You always want to explore areas that you don't know about. Uh, and that's unique to evolution. Mm -hmm. uh, that allows you to do that without much cost. I mean, you can afford it because you have multiple solutions. If some don't turn out, that's no big deal. You try something else and you eventually find um, a component that's been missing and then you recombine it with other solutions to make big leaps 
in, in performance. It's not a gradual search method that way. You make these recombinations that actually allow you to make large changes and large improvements. Uh, one of the areas that this has been applied is in like neural architecture search. Yes. Uh, is that an area that you work in? Yes, absolutely. That's something I continue to work on. Um, and uh, this, is also, this has also been happening for a long time. Architectures matter in neural networks. And currently it is only um, a few people who have uh, expertise to, to construct these architectures and they're very different. Now we can automate that by doing architecture search. And again, population-based search is great in that it allows you to hedge your bets try out different architectures. If you find an innovation, you can combine it with other kinds of architectures and therefore come up with better ones. And this is something that's been going on for, for decades. We used to do it so that evolution optimizes the entire network, including its weights. And now more recently, we optimize the architecture, the topology of the network, um, and then use um, stochastic gradient to train them. Uh, mm -hmm. So there are interesting synergies uh, between different approaches. But again, the evolution-based architecture search is the most, perhaps, bold or, or um, most exploratory uh, because in architecture search, you can get quite a good performance by just tuning hyperparameters, right. tuning some small modifications. Uh, but with evolution, you can search a lot larger space. We can look at the topologies, uh, modules, uh, as well as hyperparameters and, and find more surprising architectures that way. Um, this is, of course, very compute-intensive, but that's what you want, because compute is still coming out. We have access to more compute than ever, and we can actually utilize it to do this more broad search and find more surprises. And so from a, a research perspective, you know, where is the research frontier around evolutionary search you know, relative to a year plus ago when we spoke? Like, how is it? I'm assuming it like everything else in this space is evolving quickly. Mm. You know, what are the contemporary topics that folks are talking about? Yeah, there's um, one area is... Novelty, uh, trying to encourage indeed search to discover things that are um, surprising. Uh, how to do that right? Uh, mm -hmm. And we are starting to get a handle on that. It, it's not just that you reward novelty, but you do it in a systematic way um, so that you guarantee a certain level of quality as well. So there's a synergy between optimizing the performance and encouraging surprises and novelty to be discovered. That I think is, is still a biggest. Uh, leap that we, we need to make in evolution is even though we have computational methods that have demonstrated the discovery of new things, we're still not quite at the level of natural biological evolution. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, we are missing major transitions. Um, how do you search and change your own representations so that now you can search in a different level, like transition from single cell to multicell organisms, having evolution discover representations that allow you to uh, build uh, larger structures systematically. Well, um, what's an example of that particular challenge applied to a real use case? Well, it could be, for instance, in behavior. We, in AI, we see a lot of agents in games, for instance. So mm -hmm. in that domain, it might be that you have individuals, now we do, uh, that perform very well in Atari games, for instance. Um, maybe StarCraft. Um, but the next level there might be that they start building roads. They start building buildings or, or vehicles uh, and then um, operate and discover strategies that utilize those structures that they constructed. Mm -hmm. That it would be a, con a concrete major transition from one level where we operate at the level of whatever objects they are to constructing new objects that then you use. Yes, that strikes me as a big leap, right? You know, to get, you know, it's creativity, right? It's kind of, you know, in some ways it's, you know, maybe I, I don't want to necessarily invoke AGI, but like, 
you know, it's uh, kind of an, a, a creative essence that it's been very difficult for us to achieve with, with AI. And so presumably you're kind of scaling that back to s- small leaps. And so what exactly does that mean? How do you formulate that yes. problem from a research well, perspective? That's exactly right. It is a huge, it's, that's why it's called major transitions. Yeah. We've seen it in biology a few times. I mean, it's not something that happens every day in biology either. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but we haven't really seen it in evolution, computational evolution yet. But we are getting there. We're starting to understand how that might work. And indeed, they happen in small steps. Open and open-ended discovery is another term that's used there. Something that doesn't really run out of steam after you solve one problem, but it creates another level of problem that you then start mm-hmm. solve. Typically, those are done in games. Uh, so you perhaps evolve the game environment together with the solution. So you start with navigation, a simple environment, and then you have more objects there that you have to get around and maybe other opponents that become more sophisticated. Um, so it is that's how we approach it. Mm-hmm. Sounds a little bit like curriculum learning in a sense yeah, that it, you're kind of grade, gradating, gradating. You're, you're making your environment or your problem more complex and trying to... Yes, very much like curriculum learning with one exception. The curriculum is designed automatically. Uh, it's a co-evolutionary co- co- set. Okay, yeah. Uh, so you have solutions and problems that evolve at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's how you might get open-endedness in the end. And that's the goal. We are not there completely yet, but there are some sure. uh, indications that we might get there one, one, uh, one day. So that's one big uh, area. There are also, I think, uh, an interesting opportunity in looking at what's been learned in biology in the last 50 years or so, um, because most of the techniques are based on our understanding of how... Uh, genetic algorithms work based on um, population biology. But we know a lot more now than we did in 50 years ago. So looking at what current biology thinks is happening in evolution and discovery might give us better computation. So one of them is um, that it's not just selection, mutation, and uh, recombination, but there's also drift. There's also Mm -hmm. large populations with weak selection that allows you to come up with solutions that don't necessarily help, they are weakly deleterious, but in the long run serve as stepping stones to something bigger. And our computational methods don't actually do that today, and we're starting to look into how we could do that. And a third area might be um, indirect representations. So we are currently in evolution computation uh, focusing on uh, genetic representation that maps directly to the solution one-to-one. In biology, there's a developmental process. There's interaction with environment. There's even interactions between genes. Uh, and then the final product, like a human being, is not determined by genes. It's determined by genes plus environmental interactions. How do we take advantage of that? How do we create uh, a learning process that takes into account that there's a mechanism of interaction that makes you what you are? Mm-hmm. So that's a third area where, where we're going today and, and in the future. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to. I'm going back to this the the analogy of or the the use case of architecture search and trying to think through, you know, the way that this problem of uh, creativity expresses itself. Like you've got you know, when you're trying to apply evolutionary uh, AI to uh, something like an architecture search, are you starting with? Presumably, you're starting with some known architectures and evolving based on those and at some point you want to get to something new Mm -hmm. right 
kind of refine that, you know, for me. Are, you know, how do you represent the, the knowns, mm-hmm. you know, in a given problem generally? And then, you know, what does it mean to, you know, recombine things? Uh, it depends how ambitious you want to be. I mean, you could start with an architecture that already exists and mostly refine it. You take DenseNet, mm-hmm. you take ResNet, you take something like that, modify um, some of the um, topology of that. So you've got layers and connections and kind of these existing, yeah. you know, modules and things like yeah. that. And you're reorganizing yes. these things that you already know. And that already helps. I mean, you're taking, yeah. you're taking the components and principles and then defining a search space around it and finding if there's a better solution that utilizes those components. Yep. And that works quite well. Now, but you could try to make it more ambitious. Uh, and that means that you are defining a, a larger space. Uh, maybe so, so you take my, one principle, what might be that uh, architectures are built on modules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you repeat those modules many times in some kind of organization. So now you start by evolving a module, which is a combination of different layer types. You program those up first, you define a module, and then you define how you combine it at the second level. So that's, a, that's another good approach. It's a little bit broader search space now because you have a search of modules as well as the whole architecture. But uh, you, have to, if, you have to have an, a hunch or an idea where the solutions are likely to be uh, so that um, the search will be you know, finished in our lifetime. Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of the thing that I was poking at. It's like, you know, how do you represent the thing that you have no idea what it is? You have to, yeah. it, it has to be at least directed and, you know, not totally open-ended or else. Yeah, well, it, this is a really a crucial research question because you, scientifically, would you want it to be as open-ended as possible. You want sure. the system to be able to discover things you don't already know. Right. But the more knowledge you put in, the more likely you are to find some solutions. Right. Uh, so that comes back to the major transitions that we really need a system that can evolve its own representations so that when it discovers something useful, it can use that as a new representation and build upon it. Mm-hmm. And we're not quite there yet. Yeah. I mean, we have a little bit of an idea how to put together modules and then structures based on those modules, but eventually it bottoms out. Uh, on certain layer types that you program up, certain ways of doing the connectivity. And, and that is based on what we know of what kind of architectures people have built and, and how they work. So you try to abstract those principles and expand a little bit, but not too much. So mm-hmm. it's not a needle in a haystack, well, it's a needle in a haystack, but, but it's still uh, guided towards architectures we, we believe are likely to work. And so has this space gotten more accessible over the past year and change? Are there like easily accessible toolkits that someone can you know, download and play around with or yes. implementations? Yeah, there's, there's a lot more now. Um, there are a lot more approaches as well. Uh, and mm-hmm. most of those approaches are clever ideas on how to make do with less, make more with less. So for instance, you evolve a smaller architecture and then there's a mechanism of expanding it, like just copying and making more, de- um, uh, adding more depth and so on, mm-hmm. which adds more power. So you're trying to discover a principle and then mechanically expand it to get more performance. Um, but there's another direction, I think, that's, that's really interesting uh, in the future also. And it's not just to try, uh, not just try to come up with better performing architectures, but optimize something else about that architecture as well, like its size. You try to come up with a small architecture that does the job mm-hmm. uh, to a certain specification. Or maybe architectures that um, are more robust against adversarial attacks mm-hmm. or other um, um, 
aspects like that, use less energy. Mm -hmm. uh, people are becoming quite aware that these are really not sustainable architectures. You have hundreds of millions of parameters. You can't really use it on a car or phone right. or doll or something like that. They have to be manageable. Um, so optimizing the architectures, not just for performance, but other metrics as well, I, I think is an interesting uh, future direction uh, and practical one. Sounds analogous to a multitask learning kind of yes. approach, which is shown to have uh, some great advantages in other applications. Yeah, and that um, carries over the idea that we shouldn't necessarily start from scratch every time. Yeah. Because we already have some good models. Use them uh, and build on them uh, and use other tasks, uh, bring them together. You don't have to start from scratch. You already have representations that support multiple different tasks. They might support a new task uh, much more easily. It might be a possible to build something that supports a new task more easily. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and similarly, um, it has to do with data. Um, who has you know, 100 million examples of their own uh, application? Those 100 million examples exist for ImageNet and maybe a couple of other mm -hmm. benchmark tasks. But if you're actually trying to solve your problem, it might be uh, you know, maybe lung disease classification or something. There aren't that many cases. Yeah. So you actually have to use other data sets in order to support learning of your own task. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a multitask domain. And there also architecture search makes a big difference. So that's interesting. You asked what has happened since we last talked. That has happened. That we, we, we used to focus kind of one single track mind on performance. But now we realize that there are many other things that need to be optimized in order to make these things practical. Switching topics so briefly, you recently uh, co-authored a position paper on kind of the historical evolution of AI and you know what that says about where things are going or need to go. Can you give us a quick summary of that? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> How many hours do you have? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, That's it, why I qualified that. <laughs> yes. Um, well, there's a lot of discussion about AI and uh, its role in society uh, in good and bad. Um, and there's some reactions that suggest that AI uh, is going to be dangerous and it's going to increase inequality and, and various other challenges like that. But uh, what we took uh, a look at is some of the other technologies that have been in a similar role in the past mm. uh, and what happened there and what is happening now and discovered that there's actually an analogy of what AI can, can do and, and what the pitfalls are as well. So those other technologies were computing in general and the World Wide Web. So if you look at compute, computing, uh, it was initially just for a few government or um, industry research labs, uh, then became uh, out came PCs and Macs, and, and now other people can use them, graphical interfaces to them, and then cell phones that you have now computing in your pocket. Uh, and, and it is now, right now, computing has become like plumbing or like electricity. So mm -hmm. you don't even know where it happens. You don't have to, it's available. Um, so we call those stages um, standardization, like PCs, usability, like user interfaces, uh, consumerization, like the cell phones, and then last phase is making it part of the infrastructure. Okay. Um, and we see that in World Wide Web as well, HTML, style seeds, Web 2.0, uh, and what's happening now is that uh, everything is based on web interfaces, all commerce and social media. Uh, so in web in the uh, World Wide Web, the same kind of stages have happened. And in both computing and World Wide Web, we're on the last stage. It's becoming 
the fabric of society. Uh, computing happens like plumbing. Um, World Wide Web is everywhere. Uh, and you have your personal as well as business interactions in it. So if you look at that uh, and look at AI, we can see that there should be similar stages in mm -hmm. the future. We are at the very beginning right now. AI is done by a few experts. Well, in NeurIPS, there's 13,000 such experts, but uh, <laughs> or at least people who are learning from it. But it's still quite difficult uh, yeah. to understand and apply and see the opportunities. So that's before any of this, any of these fourth stages. But we can think of standardization, so that what, it, what does that even mean? I'm, I'm trying right. to wrap my head around what would standardization means, mean for such a broad right. topic like AI. And would that is that I can't imagine that same question could have been asked about computing before it was standardized. Well, it, I, I, the way I look at it, it, seem, it, it, it's, um, it means that the different AIs can talk to each other. So we have mm. standard interfaces. You can have a visual recognition system that can talk to a natural language processing system. Mm -hmm. And these are developed by different people, different companies, different research labs, and they can talk to each other. Hmm. So we have standardized interfaces so that um, the AIs can build upon each other and talk to each other. But mm -hmm. it's still machines talking to machines. It's programs right. talking. That's a standardization. It becomes usability when people can talk to them. And we are not there yet. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. We don't really have an easy interface to talk to an AI. It's, it's very difficult to... Uh, take advantage of those. Uh, we have some initial uh, attempts to that. Programming languages, perhaps, and interfaces that allow you to direct AI to certain um, uh, solutions. But it's not, by and large, not yet happening. That's the usability part. Uh, consumerization means that anyone can take blocks of AI and put together a solution. They can manage their finances, their health. They can, I don't know, design their garden, the home. They use AI to do it, and they parameterize it. They run it. Uh, and they interact with it. So making, making it a consumer product, something that everybody can use for their advantage. That's mm -hmm. the consumerization. Calls to mind kind of the, you know, one of the popular visions of AI, uh, that of, you know, everyone's going to have their, this kind of potentially a cadre of intelligent agents that mm -hmm. are out acting in the world on their behalf. And, you know, that requires the ability for these agents to talk to other agents and yeah. to talk to other systems and things like that. Yes, it requires that. That was the standardization, but also talk to people, the usability part. Right. But then the fact that you are actually in control. You, a consumer, picks what you want to do and what um, components to use and how to put them together. Mm -hmm. So it becomes such a second nature for humans to, that, that you can actually solve problems with it. Mm -hmm. So it becomes the point that where you're thinking of, say, furnishing a room, you call an AI agent uh, to try out different alternatives, make suggestions. You are totally running it. You're in control. You're calling it. It's not controlling you. That's an important part mm -hmm. of it. It becomes uh, consumer goods just like uh, you know, uh, cell phones or running errands on the web, uh, mm -hmm. through the web. Um, and the last step, I think, is really quite interesting uh, and in the future, uh, that it could become, AI could become a fabric of society. And what that means is that we, as a society, decide what we want. Uh, we want to maximize, perhaps, productivity and growth, but we might also say that we want to minimize impact on the environment or um, maximize equality and access. Uh, and then we can use AI to design policies and execute those policies so that those goals are met. I mean, that's what AI does. It's really good in the end on optimization and discovery of how to achieve certain goals. But when it becomes 
institutionalized in, the sense, in, in a society, it means it gives humans the power uh, to come up with, uh, to achieve the goals that we decide. And that's remarkable because it's not happening today. It's never happened. There's always been individual personal agendas. There's always been dishonesty, graft, various things that get in the way and create conflict. But if we let AI do the optimization, all we do is agree, have to do is agree on what we want. <laughs> and it, that's not a small challenge, but it separates all the challenges that get in the way today uh, from, from the really what we, should, uh, which we should agree upon is what we want. That's, that's the ultimate goal. Uh, even getting there, I think there's a stage where it becomes irresponsible to try to make decisions uh, and create policies without the use of AI. AI is objective. It's based on data. It allows you to optimize. And currently it's done by humans and not so well. And it becomes irresponsible to try to make these decisions as humans when AI can do it better. But we have to still take the responsibility of setting those goals so that we can mm -hmm. use those AI in a responsible and productive manner. So that's the last stage for AI. And that's, that's why I think it's exciting and it's also important that we are now at the crossroads. We can actually adopt that vision uh, and make AI uh, such that it, it helps us achieve what we want. Uh, and we have to make the right decisions in, the, in a way. We, we cannot let the mistakes of the computing and World Wide Web get in the way. There were mistakes along the way. Mm -hmm. I know monopolies as well as overregulation, they can get in the way. But we have to recognize that uh, we need to build these capabilities over time. We need to adjust to them. Uh, so is the, the main thrust of the, the paper and the model, is it that is it to kind of locate us in time? Hey, we are here and the next stage is standardization. Is it to reassure us that everything's going to be okay because there's this kind of bright future for AI-driven policymaking? Like what, are, what is the main yeah. thing that you're trying to convey? Yeah, that's, uh, it's definitely trying to raise awareness that uh, we have a great opportunity to make AI work for us and improve the world that way. But we have to recognize it. We have to recognize that we have to build it most likely through these stages, because we've seen two examples of them. Uh, and at the time when we were working on computing World Wide Web, we made some mistakes. Mm -hmm. We could learn from those and um, do better this time. And it's possible, for instance, that uh, AI is overregulated. Uh, there's no access to data. There's no decision-making done by AI because people are afraid of it and they don't really see the potential benefit. Uh, and it will never develop. Or it will, the development will be delayed. Mm -hmm. uh, but recognizing the potential, recognizing the pitfalls allows us to see what needs to be done and hopefully nurture uh, the field so that it will, will get there. And it will happen in small steps. We can't replace everything, uh, decision-making with AI today. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have to develop the technology. We have to develop the data sets. We have to develop the, the um, in, interface that humans understand how to use it. And, and there are some challenges, like you pointed out, that humans are not willing to give control very easily uh, to machines. But there's also, I've seen as a professor, I've seen a change in the last couple of years and decades that people are much more accepting of it now because they can see the benefits. Uh, and that's happened in, say, just one example, self-driving cars. 2003, we were working with uh, manufacturers uh, developing self-driving systems, and they said that they will never happen uh, mm -hmm. because people will not let machine take over their car. Mm -hmm. They can only warn you while you're driving. But somehow the attitudes changed. 
people saw what the opportunities are. And now we have self-driving cars uh, almost ready to hit the road. That kind of change of uh, attitudes has to happen. And people have to be educated and learn what's possible and learn to understand what, what the limitations are. Uh, so to avoid them. But the sooner we understand both of those dimensions, the opportunities as well as the challenges, I think better off we are and we can make this future happen sooner rather than later. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave that there, put a pin in it. We probably should have started the conversation there and then we could have gotten into it for the whole uh, <laughs> the whole time. But interesting perspective for sure. And I am very appreciative of the update on evolutionary AI. Uh, so Risto, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.